If you happen to not have a Bible this morning, I'm so eager for you to see what God has written that you need to make a buddy with a neighbor next to you and, uh, and get your eyes on this text. <clears throat> because what we just sung about is what we're going to see. So hopefully you're, you're in your Bibles with me. You're sharing with a neighbor. Philippians chapter 3 is where we'll be this morning. And in our study through this epistle, we have seen that Christians are to live as joyful servants of Christ. And in our text this morning, Paul rings the bell yet again. He bangs the same drum. Follow along with me in your Bibles as we read our text in full, and then we will pray together. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Heavenly Father, we need your help this morning to see the glory of Christ on display. We need to behold you as marvelous as our greatest treasure. So Lord, our prayer is that you would help us to fix our gaze on the greatness of Christ. Because we believe that if we get a glimpse of Christ's glory, we will grow in glory in our Lord. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim. Amen. The Puritan John Owen writes in his book titled, The Glory of Christ, this quote, No man shall ever behold the glory of Christ by sight in heaven, who does not in some measure behold it by faith in this world. And it's only as we behold the glory of Christ by faith here in this world that our hearts will be drawn more and more to Christ and to the full enjoyment of the sight of his glory 
hereafter. You see, the key to growth as a Christian is seeing more and more of the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in our text, as we, uh, we as Christians, rather, are called to this sort of boasting in the greatness of Christ. We are to actually glory in the very glory of our Lord. Paul's aim in these verses is to show us that servants of Christ are those who glory in Christ alone. And that is the big idea. If you're taking notes this morning that Paul argues for in this passage, it's that servants of Christ glory in Christ alone. Paul says directly in verse 3 when he says, Servants of Christ are those who, he says, glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So if we are going to understand this text, we need to answer the question, what does it actually mean to glory in something? When we think of the word glory, we might think of God's glory, his greatness, his grandeur, grandeur. But this text is telling us to do glory. It's it's using glory as an action word. So what does it mean for you and me to glory in something? Paul aims to actually help us by relating other action words together leading up to this big idea. In verse 1, he writes again, rejoice in the Lord. And in verse 3, he had said that Christians are those who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So we have rejoice, worship, put confidence in, and glory. And I want you to listen to these brief definitions of these action words. To rejoice is really a response of joy flowing from love. To worship is a response of service that's sourced in adoration. To put confidence in or to trust is a response of dependence that's fueled by delight. And likewise, glory is a response. It's a response of boasting due to seeing something's immense value. Did you happen to hear the overlap between each of these definitions? Each of these verbs commands more of us than mere external duty. And what I mean by external duty is really... An example would be if somebody said, I want you to hammer that nail into the wood. Well, you would pick up the hammer and you would hit the nail into the wood, right? Task done. I literally nailed it. I mean, it's, it's in there. It's done. It's completed. And then we take this sort of external thinking and we bring it to our text and we read, okay, I'm supposed to rejoice and worship and glory and trust. And we think, Okay, um, I need to sing some praise songs, or I need to pray and say thank you to God for who he is and what he's done. I need to do these sort of external motions, and we tend to flatten the commands of Scripture to these external actions so that we can check the box. We can say, task done. But Paul has much more in mind than mere vocal vibrations, To rejoice and worship and glory and put confidence in Christ requires an internal delight. It demands the right response from the heart. But obeying heart commands is not as easy as striking a nail. 
It's much more like telling a chicken to fly. They'll jump and they'll flap as hard as they want, but ultimately they just can't do it on their own. If they are to be transported through the air by flight, it will take something outside of themselves. Likewise, something outside of us must work in us if we are to glory in Christ alone. In verse 3, Paul tells us how this is accomplished. He says it's by the Spirit of God. Jesus would emphasize the necessary sovereign work of the Spirit of God in the salvation of sinners when speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus would say, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born, he says, of the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that makes us alive in Christ. It's a work of God that saves us and gives us spiritual eyes and hearts to see and love Jesus Christ. I want to make this clear. We need God's Spirit to graciously enable us to see Christ and value Him rightly. And as we gaze upon Christ as our greatest treasure, we will respond by glorying in Christ alone. Paul moves through this text to show the heart response of a servant of Christ. And since glorying really has to do with what we value, Paul provides two evaluations for servants of Christ who glory in Christ alone. The first topic of evaluation that we are going to look at this morning is the evaluation of self-righteousness. And what we find is that those who glory in Christ reject all self-righteousness. Paul models this as he warns of the self-righteous teaching Judaizers of his day in verse 2. Look again with me. Paul writes... Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Or as we like to say, then there are fighting words. For us to really understand Paul's point here, we really need to know who these Judaizers were. During the establishment of the church, there were Jews who thought that Christ's atoning death was not enough. That Christians really needed to trust in Christ and keep the Jewish law. That they really thought that God could only ever be pleased with people who were Jews. So the Greeks needed to become Jewish by practicing their laws and traditions if they are truly to be made right with God. This was a religious system that was built all around self-righteous law-keeping. And Paul saw it for what it was, eternally deadly heresy. Because of this, Paul carefully crafted each condemnation to help fellow believers see what the Judaizers were really teaching, detestable self 
righteousness. In each statement, Paul sought to show the foolishness of their false teaching. Jews often referred to Gentiles as dogs. They were those who were unclean, garbage-eating scavengers, not like the house pets of today. And the Judaizers would seek to exalt themselves by demeaning others with such insults. But Paul saw the Judaizers were actually the dogs. They were the ones who were unclean, and they were far from God. These false teachers also would boast about their law-keeping and traditions, how God was pleased with all the good they were doing. But the Judaizers promoted self-righteous living as necessary for salvation. And Paul saw that every action done with that sort of motivation was wicked and evil in God's sight. And one of the primary issues for the Judaizers was really forcing Gentile Christians to take the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, circumcision. They thought they were set apart by God and that this physical sign proved it. But Paul saw that they were no different than the priests of Baal during the days of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18. He uses the same word here, mutilate, as the Septuagint does of 1 Kings chapter 8. Recall the story with me. Elijah, prophet of God, challenges the prophets and priests of Baal to a God contest. He said, we'll set up some altars, put some meat on, and I'll let you go first, and we're going to see whose God is real, whose God can burn up this sacrifice. And the priests cry out, they pray, they yell to their God, the prophet of Baal, asking and pleading to do this for them, to the point that they even would cut themselves. And similar to Paul, Elijah's mocking them, right? Cry a little louder. Maybe your God's just a little busy right now. Yet cut after cut, Nothing happened to their altar. And just like the cutting priests of Baal, the Judaizers' false circumcision was to be seen as this pagan mutilation that also accomplishes nothing. But Paul does not stop at turning these false teachers on their head. But he instead wants to present the clear and powerful truth that exposes all the lies. The truth of who Christians really are in Jesus Christ. Look again with me at verse three. He says, for this reason, because this is the truth, we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul's opening statement was in direct contradiction of their false teaching about circumcision. These Judaizers were completely blind to God's rebuke through the prophet Jeremiah in 4.4. The Lord says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. Lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil deeds. And due to their inability to change their own hearts, God graciously promised a new covenant. He promised a new heart 
In Jeremiah 31, 33, the Lord declares, I, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. The message from cover to cover of your Bible is that your sin against God is not primarily a rebellion of your hands. It's a rebellion of your heart. And you cannot change your heart. Only God can. And when he does, you respond like verse 3, which says, when you have a new heart, then you do these things. This is how new hearts respond. This is the heartbeat of those who have been born again. You worship by the Spirit, you glory in Christ, and you put no confidence in the flesh. But that's because it already is who you are. And who you are informs what you do and what you don't do. UPS drivers, right, the company UPS, what do they do? They deliver packages, right? It's what they do. They don't babysit your kids. They don't scoop you ice cream cones. They won't put a new roof on your house. They deliver packages. It's what they do. A couple years back, I was reminded of the company IHOP. When I want pancakes, I go to IHOP. A couple years ago, they tried to rebrand, right? They tried to branch out and do something different than who they are, and they really wanted to push for burgers, right? They even, like, re their marketing team probably spent hours on this. They came up with International House of Burgers. We'll be IHOB for a day, right? And they try to pull in more business to expand what they do, but ultimately want a, want a burger? I'm not going to IHOP, right? I'm going to Five Guys Burgers and Fries, right? Or I'm going to Big's Burgers, right? It's in the name. It's what they do. It's who they are. And when you try to expand and do something different, it's like, I'm sorry. When I go, I'm, I'm thinking of Cinestack Pancakes. I mean, you might as well put that in the name. That's what they do best, right? And like, just like that, if we try to do something different, it's like, it's not who you are. It's not who you are. Servants of Christ are those who glory in Christ alone. And it's because we're servants of Christ. It's what we do. And we should not glory in anything else. When we glory in Christ alone, we actually oppose self-righteous teaching. But not only that, Paul says we also forsake self-righteous living. In verses 4 through 7, Paul continues to show how the rejection of all self-righteousness includes our lives before Christ. Look with me, starting in verse 4. Paul writes, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But, he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
God's providence in saving Paul is brilliantly on display here. God radically saved this superstar Jew and used him to help protect his church from the false teaching of the self-righteous Judaizers. In this section, Paul basically says this, by the way, been there, done that, got the t-shirt and the mug, and I did it 10 times better than you ever could, and most importantly, it was all worthless. It worth, it's, it's worth nothing. Matter of fact, it's a loss. His rituals, his race, his tribe, his training, his knowledge, his enthusiasm, his obedience, all of it was garbage. It doesn't matter where you come from or what you achieve in this life. Every ounce of it, Paul concludes in verse 7, I counted as loss. Just like Paul turned self-righteous teaching on its head, he takes all self-righteous living, all the gain you can achieve in this world, and he evaluates it as a loss. This ought to be every believer's evaluation of self-righteous efforts. It's worse than worthless. It's a liability. Paul is instructing believers on what they should glory in, and to glory is a heart response of boasting due to seeing something of immense value. So Paul aims to help us value rightly by speaking in financial terms. What you once thought was your greatest asset is now your greatest liability. For many people, their house is their largest asset. And let's say you worked hard for years and years and years to pay off your mortgage debt and you finally made it and you became debt free on your home. How would you feel about your house? You would feel really good, right? That seems like a huge asset. You would give yourself a pat on the back and say, well done, Mr. Financial Planner. I made it. So you decide to go on a celebratory walk, and you go to check the mail. And let's say you find in your mailbox a letter from the Friendly neighborhood, local county treasurer department. Our best friends, right? And as you begin reading, you find out that due to some large budgetary changes, your property taxes are drastically increasing to $25,000 a month. It's insane, right? How do you feel about your house now? Sell it. Uh, deed it away, burn it to the ground, because that sort of debt will crush you, right? Your greatest asset turn to your greatest liability. This is how all those who have trusted in Christ ought to view self-righteous living. It's a living that aims to earn God's favor. It is crippling debt, and it will kill you. Paul has been crystal clear in his evaluation of self-righteousness. Those who glory in Christ, they reject all self-righteousness. 
But what is it that caused Paul to have this sort of radical change of perspective? This is a big turnaround. What made him see things differently? Paul gives us the answer starting in verse 8. Look with me. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul casts our gaze upon an infinitely superior second topic of evaluation, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we find is that those who glory in Christ rejoice in all of Christ. Crucial to our understanding of this text is is this sort of cause and effect relationship that Paul is conveying here. He says, it's because of seeing the incomparable worth of my Lord that all self-righteous living is counted as loss. Jesus taught his disciples this profound truth through two parables in Matthew chapter 13. He starts in verse 44, teaching, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Jesus depicted a second time in verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Every one of these texts points us back to the necessity of a heart response that treasures Christ infinitely. The reason the man and the merchant sold all they had, the reason we count everything as loss, is not merely to escape condemnation. It's because we have been granted eyes to see the immeasurable value of my Lord Jesus Christ. And our hearts respond in this ongoing, eager desire to know him more. This seeing and valuing Christ starts for believers at the moment of salvation, and it is what sustains believers throughout our sanctification. That's why Paul says in verse 7, in the past tense, I counted it all as loss. And then in verse 8, there's this continuing present counting. He says, I count everything as loss. And again, in 8, I have suffered the loss. There's real loss that happens, and he says, even that, I count it as rubbish. There is this growing relational knowledge of Christ that equips us to continue evaluating everything we have and everything we lose as loss compared to our Lord Jesus Christ. But the language here changes at the end of verse 8 and continues through 11. At the conclusion of verse 8, he writes, he says, in order that I may gain Christ. And in verse 10, he says, that I may know him. And in verse 11, that 
by any means possible, I may attain. Some wrongly read these verses as a condition. That if I give up everything, then I can earn these things. But friends, to interpret Paul that way, to use his words, would be to mutilate this text. To rip them out of the context where he just condemned all self-righteousness, all of this working to earn anything. Remember, the hands are not what Paul is addressing. It's the heart. The repeated maze in this text reveal an excited yearning and a joyful pursuit toward the infinite fullness of Christ. This language is not speaking with some sort of uncertainty, but it's showing his humble fervency for his Lord. The attitude of one who rejoices in all of Christ is eager expectation, not meager motivation. In studying this text, I've had a song stuck in my head that's titled, I Want to Know You. And I want to give you the meager motivation version of this song. I'd like to know you, Jesus. I know you're the Lord. You're the king of everything, including me. Yeah, I'm happy to give up my stuff and anything I earn. It's all yours anyway. Jesus, if I could just know you a little bit, that'd be great. Now listen to the eager expectation of this song. I want to know you, Jesus, my Lord. You are the king of heaven, and you're the king of my soul. I'll trade my treasure and all my reward Jesus, to know you, then know you more. Like wave after wave on the ocean, like all of the sand of the shore, your beauty and glory are endless. Jesus, I must know you more. Friends, we struggle with this meager motivation. And the only solution is pleading, Lord, help me to see Christ. Give me an earnest desire to see my Lord. Paul continues rejoicing, though, in this text. He rejoices in knowing his Lord by putting Christ's greatness on display for us to see. In verse 7, he says, Treasuring Christ is really based on knowing, he says, Jesus. And in verse 10, he says, That I may know him. Paul's rejoicing in all of Christ is rooted in knowing who Christ is. But this isn't a sort of theoretical head knowledge. This is a personal experiential knowledge. A knowledge of Christ that knows his blessing for those who are found to be in him. And in verse 9 through 11, he highlights for us four treasures that are in Christ. The first treasure that causes Paul to rejoice is really knowing Christ's righteousness through faith. It's knowing Christ's righteousness through faith. Look again with me at verse 9. 
He says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's intentional that Paul begins here with the righteousness of Christ. Truly all knowledge of Christ, all seeing and rejoicing of Christ, starts with receiving Christ's righteousness through faith. Paul would argue for this truth again in Romans 3, starting in verse 20, he said, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Paul would argue again this truth, this mountaintop treasure in Ephesians chapter 2. You know it well. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Friends, this is a gift of God. It's not your own doing. He says, not a result of works. And the reason is so that no one may boast. As saints of old have fought and died defending, we too must treasure and rejoice and never wear out the righteousness of Christ alone. Salvation is and always has been and forever will be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the foundation for all rejoicing, all worship, and all glorying in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes, For our sake, God the Father made Jesus Christ to be sin, the one who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. It is only the substitutionary death of the perfect Son of God for your sins that can provide righteous standing before God, that can make you fit to rejoice and sing for all eternity with your Creator. This sort of treasure knowledge of Christ is why the songwriter pens these words. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. If you are here this morning, you've heard the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. So let me knock on the door of your heart. Let me see if there's a pulse. Confess your sin. Count all your efforts as loss and cast yourself on the mercy of the righteous one, Jesus Christ. Because if you can behold the righteousness of Christ, you will delight to confess, to forsake, and to see more and more of who Christ is. For Christians, plumbing the depths of this first treasure is a lifetime pursuit. But once you see it, you jump into the deep end and you dive over and over so that you would marvel at the righteousness of your Savior.
Paul continues in verse 10 to reveal the second treasure that is cause for rejoicing, and it's knowing Christ's power. He says in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul knew there was no power in the law. There was no power there to make him righteous. He also knew there was no power in his own flesh to fight against sin. But because he knew Christ's righteousness by faith, he had experienced the divine power that had made a spiritually dead man alive in Christ. And now he longed to know more of Christ's power to transform his life. The power mentioned here is the greatest power in the entire universe. We like to dream up the kind of superpowers we would pick if we had the option. Maybe super strength, or super speed, or super knowledge, but under the right circumstances, bang, you're dead, right? It's of no value. The greatest power is the power over death itself. And praise be to God who conquered sin and death on our behalf. John records the resurrected Christ's triumphant statement in Revelation 1.18 where he says, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Now listen to Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus in chapter 1. He's asking God that he would open the eyes of these believers so they might grow in this knowledge, he says in verse 19, of what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. What is this power? It's the one that's according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Christ's resurrection power is the ultimate power. And we know it personally. We've experienced it when he opened our eyes to repent and believe and trust in Jesus alone. But brothers and sisters, we need to know his power toward us to believe who believe more. We need to see our king every morning. See him enthroned in power and dangling the keys, as it were, saying, I still got them, and they're not going anywhere. As we grow in seeing Christ's power in his word and in our lives, we will be strengthened by unbreakable joy and a joy that endures even, he says, suffering. That is where Paul progresses next in verse 10. The third treasure that is cause for rejoicing is knowing Christ's fellowship in suffering. He says, and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. We like the ideas of Christ's authority and rule and power, but we often don't like suffering. Jesus taught his disciples in John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
In the chapter right before this, Paul lifted up Christ's condescension and crucifixion as the humble mindset Christians are called to have. And as we experience suffering for the sake of Christ, we share in the suffering he endured perfectly. Times of suffering for a believer are to be counted as joy, Scripture says, because God uses them for his glory and our good. But it isn't true, it isn't it true that some of the deepest moments of spiritual fellowship with our Lord are during intense times of suffering. Suffering is meant to drive believers toward their Savior. And what we find in those moments is that we see and rejoice in who Christ is. Who Hebrews chapter 2 says is our merciful high priests. Priest. Therefore, Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 reads, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We are not alone in suffering. We experience fellowship with the God of all comfort. And he is producing endurance and humility in his servants by his spirit through our suffering. When we see the immeasurable treasure of Christ's sufferings from God's eyes, we too will plead with the Apostle Paul that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. But for those who have trusted in Christ, death is not the end. Paul provides the fourth and final treasure that's cause for rejoicing in Christ, down here in verse 11. He says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The fourth treasure is knowing Christ's resurrection promise. Knowing Christ's resurrection promise. Paul's humble anticipation for eternity with Christ was a sure hope. We saw this earlier in this same letter, chapter 1, verses 21 and 23, He declared with a fixed confidence, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. This verse in chapter 3, verse 11, should challenge our hearts this morning. Do you long for the day when you will be raised to eternity with Christ? Is there any hunger for resurrection in your spiritual life? Or do you only hanker for the vanities of this world? The more we rejoice in Christ as our greatest treasure, the sweeter his words in John 14, 3 ring in our ears. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Friends, we can't fake this kind of rejoicing 
It takes a work of the Spirit to grant a sight of Christ and delight in him. Listen to the desirous heart of the humble servant of Christ. I want to know more of Christ's righteousness by faith. I want to know more of Christ's power in my life. I want to know more of Christ's fellowship in suffering. I want to know more of Christ's resurrection promise. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul set our vision on the immeasurable, valuable treasure of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Why did he do this? Because those who glory in Christ alone rejoice in all of Christ. Having worked through our text, we've seen two evaluations. But this is a cause and effect relationship. That means these two points must be connected. And we need to know which one is the first domino. Any guesses in the room? You can respond this time. Any guesses? Which one goes first? Point number one or point number two? Number two. The biblical way is saying the last shall be first. Right? So let's connect it. Think with me. Glorying in Christ meant rejecting all self-righteousness and rejoicing in all of Christ. And we need point two first. That's what we have to see. We have to see Jesus Christ, and then all of that follows. So this is how they connect. Rejoicing in all of Christ produces the rejecting of all self-righteousness. It's rejoicing in Christ that comes first. We must see him. This is why Paul presses us as servants of Christ to glory in Christ alone. It's because rejoicing in Christ leads us to the rejection of the sinful flesh. It's a rejection of all self-righteous living. This is such a blessing for us because we don't have this laundry list or long task list. Everything flows from this one thing, glorying in Christ alone. Few points, few implications for us about glorying in Christ alone. What comes from doing this task, this heart action of glorying in Christ? Well, Paul said in verse one, he said, it's no trouble for me and it's safe for you. There's goodness and safety in glorying in Christ. This means glorying in Christ alone actually guards us from error. You see Paul's total rejection of false teaching. And it's because he knew Christ was the only way to be righteous before God. Glorying in Christ alone rejects all of that. Glorying in Christ alone protects and guards us against error. Secondly, glorying in Christ alone also arms us in fighting our sinful flesh. Friends, if you're struggling with temptation and sin and you see this repeated habit of justifying your sin and guarding it, friends, staring at your sin is not going to defeat it. But looking at Christ every single day, 
You better know that the beauty of Christ is this greater affection that will let you see that sin when it pops up and say, that is detestable. That leads to death, and I want none of that, and I want all of Christ. It's when we see and glory in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that we actually are able to fight against our sin. Thirdly, we would say glory in Christ is safe for us. It's glory in Christ alone that that really strengthens our faith in suffering. It strengthens our faith in suffering. I love how the the song writes, songwriter says, Turn your eyes on Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Friends, when we endure loss and suffering in this world, we need to remember to look to Christ. And it's only then that we will again count it as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It strengthens our faith in suffering. I want you to know my heart this morning is for your safety. That was Paul's heart in writing this letter. And my desire in this statement is that you hear a heart that wants to guard and protect the flock. Glorying in Christ alone is not intended to be a once a week activity. Friends, the world's lies, the temptation of your flesh, and suffering in this life, they don't show up once a week and take a couple days off. They kick in your door and they demand your attention every day. And if you're running on yesterday's fumes, then you're in danger. You're not safe. You're not glorying in Christ alone. The heart attitude of this passage is a longing and eager delight. It's an unquenchable appetite for rejoicing in all of Christ. May we as servants of Christ glory in Christ alone. And may God's grace stir our hearts each morning to cry out to him, Jesus I must know you more. Let's pray. Lord, our heart's cry is that your grace would enable us to see and be amazed and changed by your Spirit's work of revealing the Lord Jesus Christ to us. Lord, if there's some here this morning who have not seen Christ, we pray that you would open their eyes that they would marvel at the greatness of our Lord who died and rose again, who has all power and authority, and who alone can change their hearts to rejoice in Christ. Lord, I pray that for those here that are weak, those who know you and struggle with a meager motivation, Lord, I ask that you would instill in us a bridling desire that just turns and yanks back towards Christ by your Spirit's work that we would again cling to your feet, that we would run, that we might just touch your cloak, to get a glimpse so that we might behold your glory and might worship genuinely from the heart 
seeing all that you are. You are the king of all the world. And Lord, for those whom you have given a heart to see and delight in that know you as their king, may you empower them to fight against sin and look forward to the day where you will raise us up. You will make the perishable imperishable. And we will live and rejoice with you for eternity. We love you, Lord, and we pray all of this in your powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen.